it's like writing with a fountain pen. When you start out, it's it's a mess. You never think you're going to master it. But once you master it, you'll write with nothing else. And I mm-hmm. think that's very true with the rangefinder. Um, this photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are doing something we do very, very rarely on this podcast. Today, we are going to talk about gear. We're going to talk about tech, and we are going right to the top of, of the photographic pyramid here. We're going to the very best. We're talking with Leica. As More specifically, we're talking with John Kreidler. John is a product specialist at Leica. He's an instructor at the Leica Academy. John, welcome. Welcome to the podcast today. Hey, thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. Looking forward to uh, to this uh, conversation. <laughs> well, you know, man, you know, I do not own a Leica camera, and I have coveted one my entire life. Um, you know, I think... People in in the photography world, our brand loyalty is strong. You can be a Canon shooter or a Fuji shooter or a Nikon shooter. And and really part of our identity uh, is wound up in the brand that we use sometimes. Leica sits out there as the gold standard. Everybody knows or everybody agrees that Leica is, if not the best, among the very best cameras that are out there. And so what I really want to do today is is try and figure out what makes Leica different than the other brands that are out there. And and how did Leica get to be the, the gold standard in the still photography world. You and I were talking a couple of minutes uh, ago, and Leica's got a pretty cool history. So bring me up to speed. Leica started when and how? Okay, so Leica actually can trace, uh, we trace our roots back to 1849 when mm-hmm. uh, Carl Kellner founded the Optical Institute in Wetzlar. And about 20 years later, Ernst Lights became the managing director and changed the name of the company to Ernst Lights Wetzlar, primarily manufacturing uh, microscopes and concentrating on optics and optical design. So at the, the heart of everything that we do is optical excellence. So I think that's the number one reason why many people uh, gravitate uh, to the brand. Uh, it's uh, around 1911 that Oscar Barnack uh, joins uh, Ernst Leitz, Wetzlar, and his first assignment was to make a, a cinema camera. And during that process, he decided that it would be a great idea to have a smaller camera that he could use to test uh, film emulsion from the cinema camera. So what he did was instead of the film, like in the cinema camera, the film runs uh, vertically. He turned Mm -hmm. it horizontally uh, and made this camera uh, called the Ur. And along with Max Barrick, who was the optical designer, that Dr. Max doesn't get quite the platitudes of Oscar Barnack, they created this camera. 
Mm -hmm. and thus creating what we call today 35 millimeter film photography or full frame now full frame, full frame digital yeah. so um that's pretty cool that uh, he did that <laughs> and it was it was just you know there, there's little things like uh, a roll of 36 was actually based on his uh, arm span you know so uh, <laughs> if you ever want to know how how tall oscar barnack was simply pull apart a roll of 35 millimeter and you know his his wingspan so <laughs> yeah it, it's little uh, known it's facts about little known facts uh, about uh, the origin of this uh, this crazy industry that we call mm -hmm. uh, pho photography so um there, there are many challenges, uh, of course, uh, along the way. But one of the things then that we kind of leaned into was uh, small camera, big image. So uh, for optics, as an example, we always have a, a standard of res resolution, something that we want to hit at a minimum. So the, an interesting thing is while Barnack and Barrick are creating the ER. They had to figure out how good does this lens have to be to render images that look realistic, that could be compared to what would have been a, a modern day, like a large format camera. Right. So the story goes that they took uh, a photorealistic European postcard, which would be about a four by six, and it was printed uh, in that day's technology via dot matrix. And... I don't know that if they counted the individual dots. My guess is that they took sample areas and calculated the number of dots needed to create a photorealistic image that would be four by six. And it turned out to be about a million dots. So okay. this was then calculated into what we would utilize today in an MTF chart, which would be 40 line pairs at 50% contrast. So uh, back in, let's say, 1920 or so, when, this, when we were looking at bringing this to market, we were setting a standard for optical design that we actually still use today. So the M lenses, the, the minimum resolution requirement is 40 line pairs at 50% contrast. And anyone that wants to, to, uh, to look over... MTF charts, uh, you'll see that we uh, usually exceed that in just about every every design. So uh, again, it's it's just interesting that something that was decided a little more than a hundred years ago is still current and relevant uh, today. And that's why many photographers enjoy using vintage lenses on today's most modern digital cameras because they still render and they all have a personality and uniqueness in that rendering uh, that still works today. Okay. But I mean, engineering and, and optical engineering and coatings and, and all that stuff certainly has progressed an awful lot in the last hundred years. Why, why are the contemporary Leica lenses still so sought after, even by people that aren't using the Leica camera body? Well, again, it goes to, I think, two things. One is the optical excellence. And then the other thing I kind of lean into more is uh, the discovery of their own personal visual signature. 
So a lot of mirrorless cameras, since the advent of mirrorless cameras, Mm -hmm. a lot of photographers start to explore other manufacturers' lenses. And part of that curiosity, I feel, is from them wanting to find a lens that accurately translates what they think they see or maybe what they actually do see uh, in terms of you know, three-dimensionality, how shallow the depth of field is or how great the depth of field is. And Leica lenses are in a, a different, I guess, at a different point than uh, many other manufacturers in terms of the variety of renderings that you can get uh, because we have this, you know, ars- basically an arsenal or of lenses that uh, go back to thread mount to, to modern day. So something like a, a 75 Noctilux F1.25 that is uh, extraordinary uh, in terms of its rendering as depth of field. And it almost compares uh, to what you would get in medium format. It's, okay. it's uh, in terms of the shallowness of depth of field, the, the three-dimensional three look of the lens, but also that linear transition to and from the plane of focus. Uh, and that's also a key component uh, for us is that when we're making a lens, and it's any lens, no matter what, whether it's M or SL or S, the idea is we want to create images that look very three-dimensional. And very cool. a lot of what uh, Peter Carba, who is the, the director of optics currently for, for Leica, he, he always says, you know, it's it's easy in his terms <laughs> to create a <laughs> lens that is sharp. And, and, you know, I, I do agree with him. It's, it's easier today, certainly than it was even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago to make a sharp lens. But the, the greatest challenge is how you deal with that transition to and from that plane of focus, how natural can you make that transition look? So some manufacturers are modifying coatings, uh, and we all do, right? We all try to get coatings that are, um, let's say, harder or harder to scratch, which many vintage Leica lenses are pretty hazy because everyone cleaned them too much. You know, the only times you can find find a clean example is if someone put a filter on and like never, never took it off. But um, getting back to the modern lens, it's that is the greatest challenge is to make that transition as natural looking as, as possible. Yeah. And that's what we spend a lot of time in developing. So not making... You know, it's easy to add contrast uh, that translates to sharpness through coating, but it's it's more difficult to get the optical design to do what you want through that entire transition of focus. And that's what we spend a lot of time. In. And I think that's what, you know, people who want to use a, a different camera body but want to use our lenses, that's kind of part part of the appeal. Okay. And and that that makes perfect sense. The the Leica systems, you know, are obviously, you know, um 
fairly expensive. And the most expensive camera in the world at the moment, at the moment, is is the Leica O series number one twenty two. Looking it up online, you know, two point nine million dollars the last time it was on auction. The second most expensive, the M three D two, you know, at two point one million. You have to go down, and then there's a, a prototype that's number three. You have to go down to number four on the expensive camera list. And number four went to the moon and back. You know, what, what is it about the, the old Leicas, the vintage Leicas, that is causing such um, nostalgia or value in terms of uh, owning this little piece of history? The Zero Series, so 122, I want to say, was one of 10 known prototypes at Leica, at the museum in, in Wetzlar. And if anyone ever gets a chance to go there. It's just an incredible experience. Even if you're not a Leica user, if you're a fan of photography, there's a lot of things um, to explore and understand, particularly if you can get into the archive area and get, get to see a lot of, a lot of these things. And the, the one thing I, I would say is Leica has always preserved prototypes and history. Uh, it's always been very important to us. And I'm not sure other manufacturers ever saw it that way. Uh, I, for us, a big part of, I think, of the culture is the community. And it's always remembering, you know, different cameras and prototypes right. in general. I think a lot of manufacturers would tend to scrap, but we kept them. The cool thing, as we were talking uh, a little bit earlier, is there's an auction coming up in June, which would be the 40th that's going to have a very special camera. And it too is a zero. And it's, it's number 105. And it's uh, the personal camera of uh, Oscar Barnack. The bidding will start at uh, a million euros. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's, it's not everybody's, you know, uh, cup of tea, as it were. And it, it is estimated that it will sell between two and three million euros, which would be pretty, pretty crazy, even even by today's terms. But I mean, really, a piece a piece of history to own something that was used um, by Barnack basically as his daily driver. You know, this was a camera. He he shot family. He shot friends. You know, he photographed you know, nature and landscape, you know, the things that he enjoyed. So it'll be interesting to see what it, what it ends up, you know, you get two people in a room or online and if they both want it, you know, who knows how, how far it'll get. Yeah. But it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think it's the most, I think it's the most significant camera that I think would come, come to auction. Uh, at least in our time, I mean, I'm trying to think of, of of something else. You know, the the man that invented 35 millimeter photography, his camera. I don't know what would <laughs> what would be more significant than that. I don't I don't know. You'd have to go a bit deep. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, if, if they live stream this one, I'm going to be part of the audience because that that's going to be very interesting to see how the bidding on that one goes. John, talk talk to me about 
design a little bit because you know you look at you know the Leica advertising and that kind of stuff and and they always say you know German engineering but you know we hear that about cars and coffee pots it's and the the Leica cameras have a very um clean look they they you know people talk all the time about the simple pleasure of using them what what's motivating the design engineers there the people who are figuring out you know what it should look like what controls should be visible and what it feels like in your hand well it's again it stems from the from the past and a, a lot of times even in in lens design peter carbill would go into the archives and see what barnack said about this focal length or this lens design and even uh, dr mandler's notes in terms of all the lenses that, that he designed, over 500 or so lens patents that he, that he had created his time at, uh, at Leica. But uh, from a camera standpoint, um, you look at, say, the M camera, and there's a very specific um, design language. It's simplicity. It's clean. It has um, the oval plate, uh, oval top plate, I should say, that mm-hmm. really represents what the camera is. And when you hand the camera to someone, you know, whether they're experienced or not, like I was just at an event with uh, LHSA and when someone holds an M camera for the first time, you you can see that there's, (laughs) there's something going on in their mind. They're like, wow, this feels natural. It feels like an extension of who I am, but they, the, a lot of times you just don't communicate it. They just say, wow, this is really nice. This is beautiful. Uh, and it's, it stems from simplicity and the fact that we focus on the essentials. Uh, okay. But so, I mean, just, just to stop right there, yeah. the M system is, is the rangefinder system. It, you right. know, it, it, it's, uh, it's manual focus is, is what's going on that this, this feels natural or is this a kind of nostalgia that's creeping in? Saying, "Oh, this reminds me of you know the Instamatic with the flash cube." Right. No, that's a great question. I I think part of it is if you look at the the M11 and what mm-hmm. we've done to it in terms of it's still a rangefinder experience and it can be that experience, but now with uh, a Flex Two and Live View, it can also be used as a mirrorless camera. So part of that is nostalgia, and I, I, would, I would agree that part of it is just that connection. But I think a, a lot of it is, since they are hand-assembled in Germany, there is a production line, I want to say, of about 10 people that kind of put these, uh, put these cameras together. And at the end of the line, the person puts the red dot on, and puts it in the box. <laughs> and if you look up on the monitor, you'll see the uh, production count goes up by one. It's it's just kind of one of those interesting things. Uh, again, in Vetslar, but really, there's uh, only ten, there's only ten people building these things, right? That oh are my. in yeah. So you know, you wonder why it it takes a while to get a new camera. I think we're a little faster than Ferrari, but um, <laughs> it's, it, it is it's it's it is hand assembled, and I think the interesting uh, to bit about it is since there's so much human touch to it, that I mm-hmm. think that's part of what people sense is that this is a handmade camera, and it's focused on 
the essentials. It's designed for photographers that want to be more engaged in their photography. They want to see, you know, the rangefinder, you can see me on the frame lines. I think Peter Carver put it best. It's like writing with a fountain pen. When you start out, it's, it's a mess. You never think you're going to master it. But once you master it, you'll write with nothing else. And I mm-hmm. think that's very true with the rangefinder. Um, it does, it really, uh, for many photographers, particularly enthusiasts, it elevates their work because they're working differently. They're seeing differently. On the other side, on the professional side, professionals like the camera because it becomes, you know, their, let's say, recreational camera. It's a camera where they can do their own thing and concentrate on photography and not production and and producing output for other, you know, for advertising or commercial, you know, aspects of, of their, of their business. You know, it's, it's something that allows them to relax and again, reconnect and recreate the the feelings that they had uh, perhaps when they started with photography. So in the, the, that's kind of the rangefinder experience um, in a nutshell. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Well, and they they are marvelous, marvelous cameras. Talk to me a a little bit about the Q-series, simply because this is the one that I keep looking at. I mean, this is a selfish question here. This is the series I keep looking at as as being the ones that that I want. Um, And and not only about the Q2, but the monochrome, because, I mean, 99% of the work I do is black and white. And it becomes black and white because I go into Lightroom and I click a little button that says black Mm -hmm. and white. But... The sensor in the monochrome is is very different than the one in my camera. So the the, the Q, Q2 series just in general, and then the monochrome in specific. Okay. So the um, I guess the, the Q was introduced uh, to the world June 2015. And the interesting thing about it was the, the design language on purpose was very much like an M. But now autofocus and not a a full frame still, but not an interchangeable lens, a fixed 28 Sumalux lens that was purpose built for the platform. So uh, it's definitely uh, what we consider uh, either our gateway, uh, gateway to our lifestyle, or for many folks, it's uh, the Q camera is the first Leica camera that people buy, whether it's the a used Q or a Q2 or Q2 monochrome. And a big part of it, again, is the design. It looks like an M, yet it's fully automatic, but you could also use it fully manually with a rangefinder. It has a macro mode uh, that allows you to shoot uh, extremely close up. So again, it's uh, cameras that are still extremely popular and frequently in and out of stock. 
at dealers. Uh, right. But myself, I have a, a Q2 monochrome that I, that I shoot uh, when it's not on loan to to somebody who <laughs> want, wants to try it. And to me, uh, I like the Q, but the monochrome to me is just, is really next level, and it's for a couple of, of things. First and foremost is the sensor. Even though it's the same resolution as uh, the color variant, it's a different sensor. It's not like you can just pluck off the bare filter and you have a monochrome. And for me, what it does is it shows how sharp that 28 millimeter lens is. Uh, it's incredible in, in terms of detail. And even just out of the camera, the contrast is is really very nice. Um, so, mm-hmm. in general, manipulations the only thing you need to do with uh, you know it, is if you wanted to make something to look more or less dramatic uh, than it is. Plenty of dynamic range, be able to pull out um, detail, you know, shadow detail. For street photography, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, either you know using it to, to zone focus, like you might with an M or having the camera do all the driving, you know, focus and exposure either way. And the 28 is, is a great, is a great focal length. Then there are crop modes uh, in it for 35, 50 and 75 millimeter, you know, they they give you that flexibility in terms of seeing the crop in the camera. So the, the raw file is always uncropped, but with a, with a mask that can be moved or deleted, but the JPEG would be, uh, would be cropped. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just a fun camera. And I think a lot of people gravitate to it. And what I saw, particularly at, uh, again, when I was at LHSA, even though a, a majority of that group, the historical society really enjoy the M just about everyone also had a, a Q and many had the monochrome because they feel it makes a nice complement to say an M11 or an M10R mm-hmm. color variant. You know, it gives them that, that option. And it, because it doesn't have the bare filter that there's no uh, translation of color to black and white. And you're actually getting a few stops more in terms of ISO performance. And you're also getting more sharpness because it's not going through another two edges of glass with the bare right. filter. So right. all that, you know, I know, I know a number of photographers who have changed their viewfinders to black and white um, because they work in black and white. I mean, they're, they're trying to get close to that, but you know, their sensor is just the standard sensor that all the rest of us have got. I, I told you a story a couple of weeks ago. I'm looking at, at the uh, monochrome reporter with armoring. Uh, on, on the website here. And the first, the first time I saw that, I thought, you know, for 99.9% of us, armoring is, is, is something you would mention at a cocktail party and never in your life actually need. Mm-hmm. But I know a photojournalist who is covering a protest. And during the protest, um, somebody took his camera from him, uh, not to steal the camera, but to make sure there were no pictures. And actually, and, and this was a Leica, tossed it in a fire that was burning. Uh, he'd managed to get the memory card out of it before that happened. But after that situation ended, he went back to where that fire was burning and dug his Leica out, which was still in perfect working order. It, it had a little error message on the screen about overheating. Um, but other, <laughs> <Imagine> <laughs> you know, you know, other than that, 
where where did even the idea of armoring come up? Um, and is this basically just being used by photojournalists, or who's buying that one? Well, the the Kevlar uh, variant reporter. It again, it's. I would say the the ideas come from a, a variety. You know, we have a variety of of Q cameras. Um, you know, the James Bonds, the Greg Williams, and uh, Daniel Craig version. Uh, we've mm-hmm. had a Nikki Six, uh, and other uh, countries have had their own versions and variants. Uh, not just Q, but also M. We did a um, like a store San Francisco did a, a two forty six monochrome. M camera uh, called a Euromark that was black paint with um, a special uh, leather. So what what I would say is, I guess I'm seeing two things. One is ideas that uh, the product manager is kind of thinking about and kicking around to make, but the majority of the special editions come from our relationship with the community. Uh, so it might be that, you know, we're doing something with, with Nikki six and he, he feels, and we're talking about maybe a camera, camera design. So we go through that, uh, same with like, uh, the Jim Marshall version of, uh, of the monochrome where we worked with the estate. Yeah. And a lot of these projects just take a very, very long period of time going back and forth between concept and and design, particularly when we're working with members of the community. Like uh, I think for the, the James Bond camera, we were working with, uh, with Eon Productions, the product, the producer of, of uh, no time to die. And it's, it's always, you know, a, a process to, this is what we want. Can we do that? We can do that. How much time is it going to take? You know, can we get all the materials uh, and that kind of thing? So sometimes the the ideas that, uh, say, product managers themselves come up with tend to go a little quicker because they already know what's what's possible in terms of right. of different different components uh, that they'd want to use or a different color. You and I were talking, the famous Vietnam picture uh, called Napalm Girl um, right. was shot on a Leica. Leica has a special uh, relationship or had a special relationship with Life magazine. You know, a lot of stuff appeared mm-hmm. there. T- tell me some of the pictures that, that are just sort of the heavyweights in, in the Leica history of images produced. So th- there is a, a Hall of Fame in, in Vetslar that has a lot of images like Frank Kappa's Fallen Soldier. There's uh, Eisenstadt uh, VJ Kiss that is is kind of interesting in that Eisenstadt saw uh, the sailor basically kissing every woman (laughs) that he could get his hands on uh, in Times Square. And he, he started to follow, and he waited for him to to grab a nurse, and then that was that was the the quintessential shot mm-hmm. uh, of VJ Kiss. You know, you look at Elliot Erwitz uh, images. I mean, and a lot of his stuff. Every, I think everything in that you know that era from him, uh, like books of uh, like his dog uh, dogs photos, and um, which I I just love. I, I love his 
basically com- uh, comedic style, right? He's it's always a little right. quirky, always a little right. funny. His stuff is is phenomenal. You know, there, I mean, there's other photographers. Even you look at, you know, Phil Pemmin or Alan Schaller. Mm-hmm. You know, street street guys, Mark Mann, portraiture, Mark DiPaolo, fashion and portraiture, and they all have you know their own their own look, their own visual signature, and they've come to like a you know for that. Many have tried other. Other cameras, uh, there's a couple things we always say about the price, and you, <laughs> you kind of have alluded to, um, to this. And I know Phil Penman has said this to me on, on more than one occasion. He said, I just wish I would have bought Leica from the beginning. I would have saved a lot of money. And I always say, you know, you buy once and cry once. Uh, is one thing, <laughs> which is always kind of cold, right? I mean, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And then, um, but... I think more times when I'm talking to, to photographers, I'm like, think about it as you're, you know, you marry the lens and you're dating the body. So okay. really spend the money on the lenses that are going to give you that rendering. And, you know, as technology advances uh, on the body side, it's, it's, they're going to be updated and refreshed much quicker than the lenses there's, there's, there's lots of great, uh, you know, like images, both um, it, like Salgado, uh, you look at, mm-hmm. uh, at his work. An interesting point is uh, that uh, we're, we are doing a show at the Lake Store Boston uh, with uh, featured work from Salgado. It'll be exciting to see that. I got to see some of the prints and they're just magnificent. You know, it's, you know, you look at them in a book, right? It's one thing, and they're extremely impressive. But you look at the prints, and you're like, "Well, like, how is this even?" <laughs> you know, you know his his work from Genesis, Amazonia workers. I mean, it's yeah, it's all just crazy. And uh, a lot of that that they're the works I want to say that'll be featured within that uh, within that gallery show. Oh, very cool, man. Uh, you mentioned Phil Penman a couple of times, and, and right. Phil's uh, been a good friend to Frames Magazine a, a number of times. And he is, like you, an instructor at the Leica Academy. Um, so you know, my, my last question is, okay, what, what, what is the Leica Academy, and, and how is that going to be different than any of the other 10,000 workshops I can attend on the planet? Well, and that is a great question. So, uh, yeah, Phil and I have done... Um, I'm going to say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say about 20 or so workshops oh together my. over a period of time. So some, <laughs> uh, some virtual, some in person, and mm-hmm. I've lived to tell the tale about it. It's <laughs> the, the one thing I will tell you about a Phil Pimmon workshop and a like Academy workshop is that you will get your steps in. If okay. over two days, you don't walk between 15 and 20 miles, I'd be surprised. Basically the idea of the Academy is to deliver uh, a unique experience. So we're trying to produce programs where the average person could not easily recreate themselves. So, you know, as an example, with Phil Penman, uh, we do an in-person program called uh, Dawn and Dusk, and we've done it in different cities, New York, several times, uh, we've been to Boston. We've got one coming up in D.C. this summer. 
in August and mm-hmm. and then Miami. We've been in Miami and we'll be back in Miami, I think, in in January. So the idea is it's a mix of classroom. So if, like in the example of Phil Pemmon, we talk he talks about uh, his process of of images and how he retouches and how he has developed you know, his visual signature or his look in it, then there's a shooting experience. Um, so all cameras are welcome. We do have loaner gear that we will loan cameras during the, during the class. Uh, so if people want to try something, which is usually the case, people want to try, you know, something that may be a little different or something they've been aspiring to purchase Mm-hmm. And this would give them a real life experience uh, in shooting it in the way that they may shoot it themselves if they were if they were on their own. So we really try to um, you know part you know part talk, uh, but mainly the shooting experience. And what's great about Phil and really all our instructors kind of do the same thing. They'll spend one on one time with each student to make sure that they're understanding the concepts that we've covered, but they're also getting the images, you know, that, that, that they see and kind of mm-hmm. teaching them how to, how to see. I've often joked a bit about, you know, you're out shooting and I think any photographer can relate to this and you're shooting and you see something and you're photographing and you're very excited and think, oh, this this will be the best image I've ever taken in my entire life. And then you get home, you put it on the computer and you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> I've got a hundred images of this and they're all terrible. Like, you know, sometimes it is in the edit, but a lot of times it's just, you're just seeing the wrong thing. So a big, again, a big part of what we're trying to do is to teach people, particularly in street photography, how to see. Um, you know, see the light, you know, wait for the subject to get into the light, even though you can see them in the shadow, it's not going to be as dynamic a visual story until they're, you know, until they're in the light and in, in silhouetted or whatever, whatever you're trying to do. So that's kind of the Academy. And that's what we really, um, what we try to do. Phil is probably, uh, one of the top uh, that we've done the most, definitely the most that that I've worked with. But I have also worked with other Mark DiPaolo and uh, Mark Mann, and they're all very much the same, really gifted instructors and photographers. And a lot of times that's hard to find that combination and that they really want the the student to succeed and get, you know, the information uh, that's going to help them move along in their experience. Yeah. Well, man, you know, I'm, I'm looking over the whole like a line here, cameras, mm-hmm. lenses, the Academy and the rest of it. And I, I'm going back to the reading that I've been doing for the last, you know, several years now. There are a lot of people out there who say, oh, my fill in the brand name camera is just as good as the Leica. But there's nobody... I mean, literally nobody that I've seen online that's bought a Leica and said it wasn't worth every single penny. And it, it, you guys, you sit out there, as I said before, the, the gold standard in our world, whether or not people think their cameras are just as good, which, you know, in, for them, I'm sure it is. 
but I'm impressed. I, I think the engineering, the design, the attitude is really, really special. Thank you very much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. All right. Thanks. It's, it's been great to chatting with you. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com. <laughs>